podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with New York State Assemblyman Michael Montesano about bail reform. Mike is a former New York City detective. He received his law degree from Queens College Law School, and he represents Assembly District 15 here in Nassau County. You cover primarily the Hicksville area. Mike, what are some of the other uh, villages that you cover? So my Assembly District uh, geographics is very large. It starts in Bayville on the North Shore. And I go down what I like to refer to the 106-107 corridor, which takes me through everything in between, and I finish up in the Bethpage and the village of Farmingdale. So it's a very diverse uh, district, a very uh, large district. Let's talk about bail reform. How did this happen? So last year, the governor and his uh, members of his Democratic Party in both the Assembly and the new Democratic Senate, as you know, it's uh, we lost the Republican majority in the in the Senate about a year ago. So they came up with this legislation about uh, bail reform, discovery reform, and many other types of reforms in the criminal justice system. And because they didn't want to take a position publicly to take their vote so people would see it, the governor inserted the uh, bill language into one of the budget bills. Uh, a lot of people doesn't re- don't realize our budget every year consists of about nine separate individual bills. So when the governor has some poison he wants to get passed, he'll put it in one of these bills to give the legislators cover in taking their vote because their argument then is going to be, oh, well, yeah, I had a vote for the budget, so you know that was in there. And, uh, and in the middle of the night, more amendments were made to it that were even worse than the original piece of legislation. And that's how it came to be. And uh, unfortunately, as we discovered and was reaffirmed the last several days, my colleagues on the Democratic side of the assembly never even read the legislation that was contained in that budget bill, and they had no idea what they voted for. Uh, and now they're seeing the fruition come, you know, come out. The, the process of tagging stuff onto a, a bill, I know that, okay, well, you have to vote for the budget or you don't have to vote for the budget, but having, having all of these uh, additional uh, tags to, to any bill doesn't that compromise the ability of both parties actually to be honest with the public in terms of getting things accomplished? So you have to vote for one because you agree with it, but you also have to go along with something that is, is tied right. into it. Well, it. we've tried a number of times. In fact, there's a, uh, a case out there called Pataki versus Silva, uh, where the governor Pataki at that time was challenged for this very reason. And the, uh, the state's highest court says the governor has ultimate authority and jurisdiction over his budget, as it's provided for the New York State Constitution, and he has the right to put policy into the budget, especially when those policy issues are related to a budgetary concern. So since he had to allocate some funding, although it was woefully poor, uh, in to institute some of these bail reform changes, he got to put that policy into the budget, which I think is absolutely wrong because there's no transparency. In this particular case, there was no public hearings. They didn't bring in law enforcement, district attorneys, or anyone involved. The only hearing they had was later on, basically after the fact, by invitation only, and they invited just the advocates of this bail reform and heard no one else. So it was a sham, you know, from the beginning. It had no business being in a budget bill. And, um, and this is what happened. Now, we read in the paper every day of another incident that some people have been described as Republican fear-mongering. But the fact of the matter is that we have criminals, 
when I was corrected, they're not criminals, they're defendants. Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of amuses me because when you have somebody who is a two-time bank robber out on bail with monitoring, and then he breaks the monitor off and he's nowhere to be seen, uh, this is this is how this this has played out, and that's just one of every day. Uh, Glenn Cove again arrested some guy for for multiple uh, burglaries, and right. he was turned out in a matter of hours. Back on the street again, right. doing exactly what he did before he was arrested. So we're seeing a lot of this, and you know, of course, they always attack us as being fear mongers. So let me take you back a little bit, just before the new year came in, and this law took. Uh, effect on January 1st. So we had information from the Nassau County Correctional Facility and Suffolk County Jails that approximately 300 inmates would be released under this bail reform. And everybody called us all kinds of names. You know, they called, they attacked me on social media. You're wrong. That's not going to happen. So basically what the county executive did was starting in late October into November and December, she had the jail start to release people about 30 of them a week. So when January 1st came, you wouldn't see 300 people walk out of the jail. You only saw about 30 of them. And you see, we were right, you know, you're fear-mongering. No, we weren't. The accurate number was there. They did release that many. They just dripped them out over a period of time so the public wouldn't take notice. But everything that we've talked about with bail reform is now in the newspapers. And we don't make up those stories in the newspapers. And if I can, Bill, just to tell you most recently, um, there's a big story out east a guy with uh, probably 12 or 13 prior offenses, serious offenses, three of them for DWI. He's on probation with a intoxilizer device in his car. Uh, so, you know, monitors his driving. He gets arrested for damaging the interlock, so it wouldn't be used. He gets arrested for that and for violating his probation. The judge releases him without bail. Not two days later, he's back on the road with three times of the alcohol limit in his blood, driving 135 miles an hour, hits another car, and kills the individual. So had this man not be released on bail for the violation of probation and damaging the interlock, this person wouldn't have died. So this is just an example uh, of what's going on. Now we have a body count. We have several people with a body count. And I want to tell you quickly about a story upstate New York. A undocumented uh, immigrant, illegal immigrant, uh, no license, driving a car Christmas Eve into Christmas morning, intoxicated, strikes a woman going to the neighborhood uh, store. He kills her and he runs. Because of the cameras in the neighborhood, the police were able to identify the car and apprehend him later on that morning. And I think it was somewhere around five or six o'clock in the morning. And he's arraigned released without bail by 10 o'clock in the morning, and here's the rub in addition to what he's done. The dead woman's three children hadn't been notified yet of their mother's death. This man is home on Christmas Day with his family at 10 o'clock in the morning. These people do not belong out in the street. They just don't. You talked about a bank robber before. We had the guy commit the sixth bank robbery in succession, Every time, in fact, he speaks publicly on TV saying, I can't believe they let me out. So out of embarrassment, the New York City Police Department had to appeal to the FBI to take this guy into custody so they could hold him. And because the FBI has different standards with bank robberies, if there's no weapon involved or it's under a certain amount of money, they don't get involved. Uh, 
But they did this because they were just embarrassed that this man is on the street with six bank robberies in two weeks under his belt. The Nassau County uh, District Judge uh, David McAndrew got involved in holding somebody on bail. I guess it was this bank robber uh, mm-hmm. or another bank robber. Right. And a higher court overturned his, uh, his decision to hold this guy on bail. I understand judges have to follow the law. Are we going to see a return to the judges making these kinds of uh, local decisions in terms of whether or not somebody uh, should be released or held on bail? Laura Kern seems to be waffling on this issue back and forth, at least locally here in Nassau County. Comment on where, where we are with, uh, with judges and having to deal with this. So right now the judges, they're caught between a rock and a hard place because they do have to follow the letter of the law. But some of them now are using uh, some of their you know, discretion and, and, and different procedures in law to find a reason to hold some people. So Judge McAndrews the other day uh, made a ruling because he didn't like you know, this person's background and what they have done. And in his opinion, we're going to pose you know, additional threat to society. And he said bail. Uh, and then immediately, of course, the defense attorney went to a Supreme Court judge and had that ruling overturned because there wasn't enough established, you know, to, um, on the record, supposedly to sustain this. Uh, and he was cut loose. They, uh, they put him on a monitoring bracelet and a day later he cut off the monitoring bracelet and he's gone. However, there was another case in Nassau County where the, uh, where the judge, um, turned around and she set bail on a defendant for a couple of burglary charges. And one of them being an attempted burglary in the second degree. And, uh, you know, she made her case on the record. The case immediately went to the appellate division, second department in Brooklyn. And there that court sustained her ruling saying that she was right in, in setting bail on the attempted burglary. Because the trick in the law was burglary in the second degree, you can't set bail. But she says the law didn't address attempted burglary in the second degree. And they said she was absolutely right. And the court says due to the negligence of the state legislature, that loophole exists. So judges are trying to be creative uh, when they feel these people are a threat. So uh, until the legislature straightens out this problem and puts the judicial discretion back in place, we're going to have judges start to find ways to, to get around this. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with New York State Assemblyman Michael Montesano about bail reform. Mike is a former New York City detective. He received his law degree from Queens College Law School, and he represents Assembly District 15 here in Nassau County. How is it that a judge can be overruled in such a short period of time, but the legal process in the front end is excruciatingly slow? And obviously the argument in many instances is that people are, are, are incarcerated for weeks, months, and sometimes years before they get to trial. What is being done to fix trying somebody in an expeditious manner? Well, first, just let me address the, how a judge could be overruled so quick. So under our United States Constitution, our state constitution, uh, you know, there's that provision about unlawful uh, imprisonment. And uh, it's commonly referred to as a writ of habeas corpus. And a lot of times people are used to hearing that term on a TV show. But that, uh, but that uh, application is real and exists. So what happens is with the case of Judge McAndrews and the case of the other judge that uh, said bail is an attorney uh, prepares this application, the writ of, uh, this petition, a writ of habeas corpus, and it immediately goes to a higher court. And I mean immediately, within hours, sometimes a day. 
uh, that court will act on that case immediately because it's challenging an unlawful imprisonment, which we take very seriously in this country and in this state. So that's how that gets resolved so quickly. And they will make a ruling sometimes immediately as they're sitting there or within 24 to 48 hours. And so that's why you see that happen. In this other situation with people sitting in jail for periods of time waiting for their court cases, first of all, let me preface my comment by saying, uh, has, uh, as being a trial attorney for a number of years, having done my share of criminal cases before I was elected to the legislature, I will tell you, yes, there needs to be some adjustments and reform to our bail system, to our discovery system. It's antiquated, uh, and uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. But there's a way that you do things. You study, you have public hearings, you bring in the people involved to tell you what's going on, and then you come up with recommendations to address the issue. That was not done in this particular case. So what happens is they like to use as the poster child uh, for this bail reform this young man who, who committed suicide in Rikers Island. And he was a young kid. And what they didn't tell you was, because of course they didn't want to tell you he sat in jail for two years or so, waiting for his case and he couldn't take it anymore and killed himself. But what they didn't tell you was the length of his criminal record and his violations of probation that caused him to get put in jail to begin with when he was arrested for a new charge and that his own mother wouldn't pay a couple of hundred dollars bail that was set because he was a problem. So he wasn't there on a horrendous amount of bail. Anyone could have bailed him out, but nobody wanted to because he was difficult to deal with. And yes, his case did take a while at the hands of his defense attorney who was trying legal maneuvering for something to be advantageous for this young man. So a lot of people sit in jail because their defense attorneys are negotiating with the district attorney for, in plea bargaining. Some of them are acting as informants. And some of them are sitting in jail running the clock on bail because they know ultimately they're going to plead to an, a crime that's going to result in jail time. So they're getting all this credit for the jail time up front. So that's why you would see someone plead guilty to a charge and the judge sentences them to time served because they've already met the statutory compliance of the, of the sentence. And there are some people, unfortunately, that do linger in jail over long periods of time. And generally, it's because their crimes are significant and or they have a very extensive criminal background. And the process takes time because usually it's their attorney who's doing legal maneuvering to try and do something beneficial to them. But when a person is incarcerated on a criminal charge, their case takes precedence for speedy trial issues over those people that are not incarcerated. So a lot of it is in, in control um, of, the, uh, of the defendant and his attorney. And if I might just add, uh, lastly, some defendants or their attorneys will ask a judge to set nominal bail sometimes to keep the clock running. So sometimes you get someone locked up for stealing a car, and the lawyer will ask for nominal bail because of the guy's prior history. He knows he's going to wind up with jail time. And let's pretend, well, not pretend, these are factual cases. He already has an open warrant on another case. So the, the lawyer will say to the judge, judge, could you set a dollar bail on the open warrant? So while he's sitting in jail, he's getting credit for that other charge. So a lot of this is maneuvering done by the defendants and their attorneys also. Can we fix the judicial system? Yes, we can. It's a, it's a matter of, like I say, uh, I sit on the Judiciary Committee. I sit on the Codes Committee that are responsible for many of these things. It's, it's a question of you conduct public hearings. The public comes in. The Judiciary comes in. The district attorneys and lawyers come in. 
the police come in and everybody gives you their perspective on what the issues are. And then we sit down with our analyst and our legal staff and go over each item and the recommendations that have been given to us are how do we fix this problem. And none of this was done when this current law you know, was undertaken. It was a wholesale uh, change of, uh, of years and years and years of legal precedence was just thrown out the door. And there's issues to talk about on the discovery reform and processing of people that are arrested. One of the things that's getting lost in this mix is that everybody who's arrested for a misdemeanor, except for two different ones, gets released from the police station with a desk appearance ticket. And they go see the judge on some day within some court date within 20 to 30 days. They don't even get held over anymore, except in rare occasions. And these are mandatory desk appearance tickets that weren't used before. Uh, the only time they're not used now is in a domestic violence case or in a case of a sexual assault. Do they show up? Well, from what we're hearing is some people are showing up, others are not. So under this new rule, if a person doesn't show up, the judge cannot issue a warrant for 48 hours to give the courts a chance to find out, you know, did he forget to come? Did he willfully not show up? And also, here's another thing that costs now hundreds of thousands of dollars to the court system here, especially in Nassau County. If the judge um, uh, releases someone, the court gets their information and their preference. How would you like to be reminded to come back to court? Email, text, or a phone call. And they have to text them two days or so before their court date to, or email them to remind them that they're doing court. So, uh, and, and these are all expenses that are now incurred and being put on the taxpayers of every county. And the governor, you know, put in a poultry couple of million dollars statewide, which doesn't cover it because more employees had to be hired, more technology had to be introduced and things of that nature. So people with minor types of offenses, yeah, they'll show up in court. But all these big cases that we've been reading about, these people would be insane to show back up in court. They just had a guy in Manhattan. He's looking at 97 years in jail because he's an A1 drug offender with a previous history and a significant previous history. He walks out without bail. Do you think he's coming back to court to look at 97 years? I don't think so. The media portrays this as racism uh, against the poor. Uh, we hear that mantra over and over again. I mean, if you do the, the, the crime, you do the time. Exactly. So, I mean, but the excuse is that if I have uh, the financial wherewithal for bail as opposed to the poor. So how does that factor into the reality of the situation? So our whole system has been based on, first of all, the legislators who argued in favor of this actually argued it on a racial basis. Um, so they talked about, first of all, as you know, in, in our laws in this state and throughout the country, if you're uh, you know, at a certain poverty level or an income level, you're entitled to free counsel in court. So there's a disparity there too. If you have money, you have to pay for your own lawyer. If you don't have money, the government will pay for your lawyer. And now you look at the flip side. If you have money, you can make bail, you get out. If you don't have money, you stay in. So I, so I made a, a suggestion how we could fix this and make it fair along the lines. And I'll give you an example. We could take two cases. We could take a person with money, irregardless of their race, and somebody without money, irregardless of their race. And they commit the exact same crime and have the exact same criminal record, if any, right? And they're a danger to society. There is no bail. We man both of them without bail. Mm -hmm. And that fixes the problem real quick. 
Nobody gets bail. Remand them, put them on the speedy trial track, and resolve their cases. But all we hear about is that people in minority communities are punished more, you know, or incarcerated more. And I have to be honest, based on my experience as a police officer and detective in New York City, as a defense attorney, and now in the legislature, I will tell you the largest percentage of the crimes are committed in minority communities, and they're the victims. And the defendants there that are victimizing them are right back out in the street under this new bail law, victimizing them again. And Bill, I have to bring out this very serious situation. As you may recall, maybe three or four weeks ago, our law enforcement agencies in Nassau and Suffolk uh, arrested 97 members of MS-13 for an assortment of very, very serious crimes. Within a day or two, 76 of them are released without bail. Now, part of the new discovery laws requires the prosecution to turn over to their defense attorneys within 15 days the names and addresses of all the witnesses and people that are going to testify against them. So knowing the history of MS-13, do I need to tell you or the public listening what happens next with these guys out on the street? They're all illegal immigrants in this country. They have extensive criminal records. First of all, you really don't think they're coming back to the courthouse. And number two, they're going to do some damage uh, to the witnesses you know, against them. And so this is what people have to learn to understand. Do some people unfortunately get caught up in this large problem and spend extra time in jail because they can't make $500 bail? In some cases, $100 bail is like $1,000 to some people. I get it. So that's the things that we can make adjustments for. And listen, we just passed legislation last year and modified it again. Charitable organizations are now allowed to post bail for people up to uh, I believe it's now $10,000. In any county, when the law first came out, it was re restricted to the county where they operated. So now they can post bail for anybody they want with an assortment of crimes, if they so choose. So there is, a, there is already a method in place for people without money to get bailed out. And as a former detective police officer, this has got to be terribly demoralizing for law enforcement to make an arrest and then have, have these defendants turned out. Well, it is very demoralizing because we have a couple of things going on at the same time, Bill. We have out there uh, an anti-police movement going on. And you saw it the other day with the, 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 the train stations, and I believe it was Grand Central Station, uh, these protesters. Actually, in my opinion, they were thugs, and they were just vandalizing the uh, subway and transit system. And they're saying they're being over-policed and all these types of things. So police officers every day go to work and put their life on the line. They put their physical safety on the line to arrest perpetrators of an assortment of crimes, whether they have guns, whether they have knives, and all the crimes they do. And they take that risk for us to protect the public. And then within two to four to six hours, the person they went out of the way to arrest and sometimes were physically injured in doing so uh, is out at the street and they're still finishing up their paperwork at the police station or laying in a hospital emergency room for treatment for the injuries sustained. And um, this is what the public needs to understand. We're hearing this outcry from certain communities that they're being over-policed. There's too much police in their community. Well, it's there for a reason, because their crime rate is so high. If you recall last year, our Nassau County Police Commissioner, Pat Ryder, who I have the utmost respect and regard for in his abilities and how he's bring that, has brought the crime rate down in this county and the homicide rate down in this county, but except in the village of Hempstead. 
So the village of Hempstead had the highest homicide rate that contributed to Nassau County. They have their own police department that can't cope with the amount of crime there. So the police commissioner made an arrangement with the New York State Police and added one state police car with two troopers and a Nassau County police car with two officers to, to, to supplement the village of Hempstead Police. And they are members of the community. Certain, I'll, I'll say it this way, certain members of the community went against this. It says you have no business coming into our communities with these extra police officers that are going to arrest our residents. Well, you're crime-ridden. You have the highest amount of violent crime, and you, you're turning away help. You know, and this is there's a mentality to segments of the population out there that have this thing that they want to live in their communities the way they want to live in their communities. So if they want to victimize each other, that's okay. They want to rob each other, fine. They want to sexually ass assault their woman, that's fine. Stay out of our neighborhood. So there's two ways of looking at this. Either we go in there and take it over and do what we need to do, or we pull the police out and let them cannibalize each other because that's essentially what they're asking for. And morally, that's not correct. As a government, we have an obligation to protect people, and that's what we're doing. And these people have to get off of this uh, wagon that they're on about uh, you know, their anti-law enforcement. We're there to help them. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with New York State Assemblyman Michael Montesano about bail reform. Mike is a former New York City detective. He received his law degree from Queens College Law School, and he represents Assembly District 15 here in Nassau County. Our politicians that are watching this play out every day, for instance, Laura Curran, uh, one day she says one thing and the next day she appears to be, uh, let's look at this. And this also goes to the Senate and, and to the Assembly. Well, now we're going to have to tweak it. Uh, can it be tweaked or is it really fundamentally flawed? It's fundamentally flawed, and in fact, we've been appealing to the governor since January 1st and slightly before that to ask him to sign a moratorium to put this whole new uh, bail reform law on hold until it can be dissected and redone. This is not something that requires tweaks. This is something that requires a complete and utter overhaul. As far as I'm concerned, the way it, is, it exists now, it should be eradicated and we should start from square one the way we were supposed to start from square one and do our due diligence, our public hearings, let the public hear us, and let these stand as standalone pieces of legislation that the legislators have to vote on and debate in the eye of the public so the constituency can see how each and every one of their elected representatives has acted on this bill and voted for it. Now we have State Senator Monica Martinez of Brentwood, a Democrat. She wants to tweak it. Everyone's talking about tweaking it. Right. But is it apparent that nobody really on that side of the partisan fence is talking about how great it is, but it has to be tweaked as opposed to perhaps right. the Republican side that's saying this thing is just, as you said, fundamentally flawed? First of all, uh, every one of our senators on Long Island voted for this piece of garbage because that's exactly what I'll call it because that's what it is. And then, of course, the senators in New York City and everybody, you know, chimed in on this. Now, all of a sudden, they're backing up and saying, well, you know, maybe it should be needed to be tweaked. It needs to be fixed uh, because of the pushback that they're getting. They didn't expect this type of pushback. And interestingly enough, Bill, some of the communities that are pushing back are the very ones they thought they were going to be serving with this piece of legislation because everybody realizes when they're victimized. 
it, it's interesting the way they're acting in the legislature. Well, we'll fix it because we realize there's a problem and there's a couple of news articles in the Post the last several days about this. All of a sudden, the Assembly Democrats are pressuring the Speaker, Speaker Carl Hasty. We have to do something because now they're under threat from their own party that there's a problem. And so now they're trying to make nice. And this, I hate to associate it this way, but this reminds me of the uh, Munchausen by proxy syndrome. They create the problem. They created the illness and this, and this disgraceful debacle that's out there. And now they're acting like, oh, you know, we have to fix this. I'm going to introduce a bill to fix this. I'm going to introduce. They're coming in as the savior. But they're the ones that created this problem to begin with. So I think it's shameful conduct. And I think if they're really sincere about doing this, let's get this put on hold. Uh, and, and, and let's get back to the drawing board and do what we have to do. This is more than tweaking. They're even starting to realize now this 15-day discovery period is impractical and impossible. To touch on it quickly, how does a prosecutor turn over everything he has in 15 days when first they have to get it from the law enforcement community? You take a, a rape kit that's used by a hospital when a, a woman's been sexually assaulted. You don't have those results back from a lab in 15 days. It just doesn't happen. Drug testing doesn't happen in 15 days. So, so much so because of the volume of cases that come into the system, there's only so many uh, uh, scientists that could examine these types of things. And then they want the witness list. They want this. And here's the worst thing. If you're the victim of a burglary, the defendant can now come back to your house with his defense attorney to walk through your house because it's a crime scene to see what's going on. Also, if a woman's the victim of a rape in her house, that defendant has the right to go back to her house with his lawyer and walk through her house, her bedroom, her living room and kitchen, wherever he raped her, to visit it as a crime scene. So you tell me that, that any of this makes sense. Are you confident that based on the extreme political polarization, uh, both nationally and, and in Albany, what kind of a timeline do you see in terms of uh, both parties getting together and say, let's make this thing work? So there's been talk the last several weeks because, you know, myself and my colleagues in the Republican conference, every day we keep the pressure on the Democratic side to get this done between our press conferences, social media, and uh, press releases. Uh, the pressure is on them now. It's becoming more than they could bear because they're becoming vocal at this time. A lot of them wanted to wait until the budget was over. And that's not acceptable to us. This is a, a significant priority, public safety as it is at risk, and it needs to be addressed now. And there's no reason why we cannot address it while the budget process is going on. There's just no reason whatsoever why we can't. And it certainly does not belong in the budget. And I believe some of the, the Democratic members of the legislature are going to try and use the opportunity to uh, redo this bail law uh, to their own gain in doing budget negotiations to get favorable things put into the budget. There's also a law out there that you may be familiar with called 50A, and that's the privacy law for law enforcement, that their personal records are shielded from uh, public uh, display. And I believe they want to use that as a uh, to trade in exchange for this uh, bail reform modifications. And I don't believe one has anything to do with the other. Stand up and take issue with what you have, and let's address them separately and independently so that people see where we're going. I think, you know, this, is, this should not be a partisan issue. This is a public safety issue, and this is one of the mandates we're charged with. As legislators and as a state government, we have the right to protect the health 
safety, and welfare of our residents. We're recording this on a weekend. Typically, you're, you're in session now, but mm -hmm. typically, how many days are, are you in Albany? So every week, it's, uh, it averages three to four days a week, sometimes in the month of March because the wrap-up of the budget could keep us there five days. But generally, we're there three to four days uh, every week uh, between uh, January and June. What do you see in terms of accomplishing something in addressing this bail reform before uh, at the end of this session? Oh, for us, this is an absolute. There's, there's no discussion. None of this has to be done before the end of session. I'd like to see it done before the budget's even voted on. This should not get caught up in part of the budgetary process. We should at least right now, as I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, we should be scheduling the public hearings, which are very easy to schedule. You know, we have our budget hearings going on right now, so there's people available to testify. I know our law enforcement community is standing at the ready to come at any time we need them. Judicial uh, personnel are at the standing at the ready. Everybody that's concerned is there, and they're visiting Albany every week trying to appeal to my colleagues to get this ball rolling because we're already starting to accumulate a body count, and, uh, and, and this is not good for anyone. And again, I'll emphasize that the governor should show leadership in this area and put a moratorium into effect, putting everything on hold, let us go back to the old system. To me, that'll be even more of an incentive for them to act quicker, and we could uh, eliminate the, the potential for any more loss of life uh, that's going on out there. What can we do as citizens to move this, uh, this process along? Contact your representatives. Like I tell everybody in the public, elected officials respond to the voice of the people. There's no question about it. And so today, the contact medium is always email. Uh, and, and phone calls. We still have a lot of constituents that are traditional letter writers. They'll sit there with a piece of paper and write a letter uh, longhand, type it, whichever way that message comes across. But I will tell people, go to your computer. Everybody has the address on the legislative website, you know, the assembly, the Senate, the governor. You have to keep the pressure on these elected officials, even your own. Your, the computer will tell you who your senator is, who your assembly person is. Uh, the governor is on there. They need to be pressured. I mean, I will tell you at the, uh, uh, during the week, I average about 1,000 to 1,200 to 1,300 emails that people are concerned about budgetary issues, vaping, uh, you know, school aid, library aid, and they're very passionate about those things, and they're very vocal about it. Well, now the public needs to be vocal about this and continually harangue their elected officials and most importantly, the governor, because the governor plays the most important and key role in this particular situation. He's the one that put this in the budget. He's the one that the last minute took out the dangerousness standard for judges to consider. And so he was the, um, the, the, the head manipulator around this piece of legislation. He owes it to the, uh, the residents of the state of New York to do something on an immediate basis to get this done and to then coach the legislature into getting the job done and to reforming you know, these issues. But elected officials respond to the public. When you pressure them enough, when you write to them enough, they keep count. They keep count how many emails they get regarding different issues. They keep count about how many of them are from their constituents or outside the constituency area. But they, pay they sit up and take notice. And that's why, as I told you earlier on in this uh, show, 
that uh, most recently in the last two days, the Democrats in the assembly are up in arms because they admit they're getting substantial pressure from the public and that they're trying to get the leader, Carl Hasty, to come to the table. He's been the biggest opponent to doing anything. Why? Because uh, he comes out of the Bronx and he feels that his communities have suffered enough under, under the police and the court systems. Of course, he won't tell you how high the crime rate is in the Bronx, especially for violent crime. And he feels this is a key accomplishment of his administration, and he doesn't want to admit defeat or failure, that they were wrong on this. It's just, I can't emphasize this enough. If I have any criticism of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, many of which I get along with very well, we have good relationships on pieces of legislation, but this time they all dropped the ball. Not one of them took the time to go through this legislation and, and, and to see what it was about. They were sold the bill of goods, and they just swallowed it because they wanted to get the budget done and whatever icing the governor gave them uh, on the budget to go along with this. And this is basically what happens. When you have holdouts, and this goes on a national level and a state level, you have legislators hold out on their votes about supporting something. They get a visit from the governor or from the leadership. What's it going to take you know, for me to get your support on this? And that's when they come up with their grocery list of, I need a new bridge, I need a new highway, I need uh, some subsidies for businesses in my community, I need more jobs, and, and then the governor makes a deal with them or their leader makes a deal with them to fund that for them, and that's how they get their vote. And that's exactly how you see this stuff go through. It's the only way some of this garbage ever passes through the legislature. Thank you, Mike. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with New York State Assemblyman Michael Montesano about bail reform. Mike is a former New York City detective. He received his law degree from Queens College Law School, and he represents Assembly District 15 here in Nassau County. The podcast is That's Interesting. That's Interesting is a production of Moser Media and is recorded at LIU Studios at Long Island University in Brookville, New York. Our post-production engineer is Chris Maffey. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Moser, hoping you have the best day of your life.